Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. And right now you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. It was shortly after 9.30 p.m. on Friday, December 3, 1926, when legendary mystery author Agatha Christie climbed the stairs of her Berkshire home and went into her daughter Rosalind's room. She leaned over the sleeping seven-year-old girl and kissed her gently on the head. Then Christie headed back downstairs, climbed into her car, and drove away into the night. What happened to her after that is a mystery even Hercule Poirot himself would scratch his head over. For nearly two weeks, it appeared that Agatha Christie had vanished from the face of the earth. The only clue left behind was Christie's car, which was found abandoned with the door open on a steep slope at Newlands Corner near Guildford. The vehicle didn't show any signs of damage, and Agatha Christie appeared to leave no clues as to where she had gone. The British press went wild with speculation about what had happened to the mystery writer. Soon, news would travel across the pond, and stories about the missing writer would hit the front page of the New York Times. It's difficult to understate how popular Agatha Christie was, and remains to this day. Imagine if J.K. Rowling or Stephen King abruptly vanished, leaving behind nothing but a magic wand or a red balloon for a clue. Even today, the Guinness Book of World Records lists Agatha Christie as the best-selling novelist of all time. Her novels have sold 2 billion copies worldwide, and her estate claims that her novels come in third in the rankings of most published books, only behind the works of Shakespeare and the Bible. Christie's disappearance was a story that had all the elements of one of Christie's mystery stories. Fairly close to where the police located the abandoned car was a natural spring known as Silent Pool, where two children had reportedly drowned some years earlier. Some investigators theorized that the author may have taken her own life by drowning. Yet the police dredged the pool, and no body was found. A few reporters suggested the disappearance was nothing more than a publicity stunt to sell her latest book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. But that didn't make much sense considering the book had been out for months and was already selling well. Still others came up with an even darker theory. There were some who began to speculate about the possibility that Agatha's husband Archie, a former World War pilot and known philanderer, had murdered his wife and disposed of the body. When news broke about Christie's disappearance, a few well-known mystery authors, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, joined the police in what would turn out to be one of the largest manhunts ever conducted in British history. The creator of Sherlock Holmes was also a dedicated spiritualist, 
and he actually took one of Christie's gloves to a celebrated medium in the hope she would be able to provide some answers from the great beyond. Alas, nothing ever came of it. Mystery writer Dorothy Sayers took a more grounded approach to the investigation by examining the location where Christie's car was found, hoping to discover some clues other investigators may have missed. But Sayers didn't find anything new either. Nearly two weeks went by without anyone having any idea where Agatha Christie went. Then on December 14th, just as suddenly and mysteriously as she had vanished, Agatha Christie was found. But this only led to more questions. It was a man named Bob Tappan who reported Christie's whereabouts to the police. He was a banjo player at a posh hotel, and he'd spotted the elegantly dressed woman as he played for the wealthy crowds at the Swan Hydro Hotel in Harrogate. The Swan Hydropathic was a luxury spa and resort where the rich and famous could get away and relax in comfort. From practically the first moment Tappan laid eyes on her, he was certain this was the most famous missing woman in Europe. It didn't take long after that for police to confirm that this mysterious woman was indeed the missing author. Agatha Christie told them she had no memory of what had happened to her, or how she had gotten to the hotel, although it's still debated to this day whether she was lying or not. Perhaps one of the most telling details about Christie's story was that she had checked herself in using the name of Teresa Neal. Neal was the same last name as that of her husband's mistress, Nancy Neal. During her stay at the Swan Hydro, Agatha Christie did nothing to arouse the suspicions of the other well-to-do guests. She kept mostly to herself, although she did routinely join in the evening dances, which is reportedly how Bob Tappan managed to identify her in the first place. Although some stories claim Tappan had been alerted to Christie's presence by one of the hotel's maids. Yet another odd thing about Christie's time at the Swan Hydro was that she admitted to having read newspaper accounts of her own disappearance that featured her photo. Yet she still claimed to have never recognized herself at any time. After police informed Archie Christie of his wife's whereabouts, he rushed to the hotel to collect her. Only Agatha seemed to be in no real hurry to leave. She even kept Archie waiting in the hotel lounge while she changed into her evening dress. No one knows for certain what happened to Agatha Christie during the time she was missing. For the rest of her life, all the way up to her death in 1976, the author never spoke publicly about what happened to her during those two weeks. In fact, in her autobiography, she barely mentions the incident at all. Within two years of her return, Agatha Christie had divorced her philandering husband, and married a distinguished archaeologist named Sir Max Mallowan. From then on, she continued her long and prolific writing career and grew to superstar status in the literary world. There are plenty of reasons why people go missing. Everything from foul play to those individuals who run off to start a new life elsewhere. Agatha Christie's disappearance in 1926 was one of the biggest news stories of the year but it may surprise you to learn that Christie wasn't the only major celebrity that year to mysteriously vanish, then reappear. In May of that year, the Christian evangelical community was rocked to its core when the world-famous preacher, Sister Amy Semple McPherson, went missing. And like Christie, there's good evidence to suggest that she may have faked her disappearance as well. I'm Nate Hale, feeling a little disappointed that aliens haven't abducted me yet, even though I've been putting out all the right signals. And this is The Conspirators.
The evangelical Christian community has produced a number of superstar evangelists over the years. Church leaders whose fiery and passionate preaching of the Gospels have inspired millions of devout followers worldwide. But few have ever had such a colorful and at times controversial history as that of Amy Semple McPherson. Sister Amy, as she was often called, was the founder of the Foursquare Gospel Church. No matter what your religious leanings may be, the fact that McPherson was a woman who was able to start her own megachurch from nothing, at a time when preaching the gospel was considered strictly man's work, was quite an impressive feat. She was born Amy Kennedy into a devoutly religious family in Ingersoll, Ontario, Canada, on October 9, 1890. From an early age, Amy began to question her parents' beliefs and went on to develop her own set of Christian beliefs that sometimes put her at odds with members of her own church. Life in the quiet dairy farming community she grew up in could be dreadfully boring. There was no television back then, no movies, and not much in terms of social activities for young people outside of attending church. In 1907, Amy was on her way to a rehearsal for a school play when she took a detour that would change her life forever. She heard strange sounds coming from a Pentecostal church revival meeting, and she decided to check it out for herself. What she saw were sights and sounds unlike any church service she was used to. There were people singing and dancing in the aisles. Some people began speaking in tongues, a practice also known as glossolalia. People who practiced glossolalia claimed to be speaking known languages and were actually expressing the word of the Holy Spirit telling them where they should go and preach the gospel. During the Pentecostal service Amy attended, some people began lying prostrate on the floor. It was because of this particular practice that members of this relatively new Protestant sect were sometimes referred to as holy rollers. This entire experience was an eye-opener for the young woman. She had always been strong-willed and more than willing to speak her mind and question her own faith. One of the fundamental questions that had been eating at her was whether or not Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was correct. If so, and man was descended from animals, that meant the book of Genesis was a lie. She prayed nightly for God to give her some answers and to show her the way forward through our doubts. That night in that Pentecostal revival, she felt her prayers were finally answered. When a tall, handsome Irish preacher named Robert Semple stepped up to the pulpit and began to speak, all doubts left Amy's mind, and she instantly fell head over heels in love with both the Pentecostal church and the man himself. Shortly before her 18th birthday, she married Robert. Not long after that, the young couple set off for China on an evangelical tour. Early Pentecostal missionaries took a rather brash tack towards spreading their message. Most missionaries like Amy and Robert didn't put forth much in terms of planning or even learning the language or customs of the country they planned on visiting. They just packed up their bags and headed out, believing God would provide them with anything they needed. But China turned out to be completely alien to the young woman from the small Canadian farming community. The summer heat was devastating to her, and the food was a complete unknown. She had no idea that some of what she and Robert ate had been raised in soil fertilized by human waste. Within three months of arriving in China, both she and Robert contracted malaria and dysentery. And by the end of August, Robert was dead. Amy was eight months pregnant, physically ill, not to mention penniless, and alone. 
Just a month after her husband died, Amy gave birth to their daughter and returned to the United States. She landed in New York City where her mother arranged for her a job with the Salvation Army. In 1912, she married a restaurant accountant named Harold Stewart McPherson. Within another year, the couple had moved to Providence, Rhode Island, where Amy gave birth to a son they named Ralph. But Amy was never content living as a traditional housewife. She always felt that she had a higher calling and that she was destined for bigger things. The next few years were dark times for Amy Semple McPherson. She had a series of health problems, including appendicitis, and at one point was forced to undergo a hysterectomy. She was constantly depressed and would eventually have a full nervous breakdown. In 1915, Amy Semple McPherson decided she'd had enough, and she finally ran out on Harold, taking the children with her to preach the gospel on the streets. Even when she was a little girl, Amy felt that preaching to the masses was her true calling. Back then, she would line up her dolls in her bedroom and deliver sermons to them. But now that she was a grown woman, she had a new series of problems to overcome before she could build her flock. She had almost no money and ended up spending $5 to purchase the only dresses she could afford, two white servants' uniforms. These would turn out to be her signature look from then on. And with no savings and no church backing, only the clothes on her back and an old Corona typewriter to type out her sermons, Amy Semple McPherson set out to build her ministry. Being a female Pentecostal preacher was considered something of a novelty act. At first, a few passers-by would gather around her out of curiosity. But as she continued to travel, those crowds grew larger and larger. Over time, McPherson began drawing hundreds and then thousands of people who came to hear her speaking in tongues and giving faith-healing demonstrations. By 1922, Amy Semple McPherson was breaking attendance records set by some of the biggest evangelical preachers of the era. In San Diego, more than 30,000 people turned out for one of her events, a crowd so large that the Marines had to be called in to maintain order. It was at that event that McPherson allegedly prayed away a woman's paralysis, causing her to stand up from her wheelchair for the first time. Amy Semple McPherson offered folks in the small towns she visited a new kind of preaching. Most of the traveling ministers that came around offered up angry fire and brimstone messages, but Sister Amy offered them hopeful messages of a better tomorrow, appealing to people on a personal level by sharing stories of her life, her children, and most importantly, her faith. Once during the summer of 1918 in Philadelphia, a gang of thugs showed up at one of her tent revivals armed with clubs and gas cans, looking to start trouble. Sister Amy talked them into laying down their weapons and kneeling with her to pray. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like. Longtime listeners to The Conspirators have heard me talk about some of the moral panics that have gripped America. From witches to spiritualism to the Red Scare to the Satanic Panic. 
American Hysteria is another terrific podcast that explores moral panics that overcome the public. Things like stranger danger and satanic ritual abuse, urban legends like poison Halloween candy and phantom clowns, and conspiracy theories like the gay agenda and the Illuminati. Think of it as an alternative history through the lens of the false things we fear and the outrageous things we sometimes believe. Expect forgotten oddities of distant American history, as well as breakdowns of controversial pop culture events like Tinky Winky's outing and when Elvis joined forces with Nixon in the war on drugs. American Hysteria combines some of my favorite subjects, including sociology, psychology, history, and storytelling. Find out how 19th century spirit communication was full of intersectional politics, how crossword puzzles threatened to topple the social order, and how candy was once seen as a gateway to unspeakable sin. Through exhaustive research and analysis, as well as dark humor, American Hysteria tries to explain where our weirdest beliefs began, how they grew over time, and how much of our past we can find in the present. Host Chelsea Weber-Smith, a former fantastical thinker and growing skeptic, gives a sometimes heartfelt, sometimes hilarious, sometimes horrifying look at how American freakouts shape our history, psychology, politics, and culture, and makes us all into believers one way or another. From Skylark Media, you can now binge all of Season 1, and Season 2 begins June 3rd. Subscribe to American Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to my show. In 1921, Amy Semple McPherson broke ground in Los Angeles on one of the largest churches in the nation, the Angelus Temple. In Los Angeles, McPherson felt she could do the most good because of the massive influx of people moving to the area from the rest of the country. People whom she saw as being in dire need of spiritual guidance. Being in close proximity to Hollywood also allowed Sister Amy to spread her message further and faster by giving her easy access to press agents and publicity managers. The area surrounding Los Angeles actually had a pretty lengthy history with the evangelical Christian community. In fact, back in 1880, a wealthy land developer named Harvey Henderson Wilcox and his wife Daida bought up a large parcel of green pasture just outside L.A. with the plan to turn it into their idea of a perfect Christian society. This area would be carefully screened for only the right sort of people, which, in their vision, the right people, meant only wealthy white Christians like themselves. There would be absolutely no drugs, no alcohol, no illicit sex, or anything else they deemed sinful allowed. Daida even came up with what she decided was the perfect name for this Christian utopia after hearing a wealthy woman on a train who mentioned the name she had given her private estate. The name Daida overheard and would go on to dub her own perfect community was Hollywood. And if you know anything about the history of Hollywood, I'm sure you're well aware of how squeaky clean and free of sin it has remained over the years. By the mid-1920s, Sister Amy was playing to a packed house in her 5,300-seat temple, three times a day, seven days a week. By the spring of 1926, Amy Semple McPherson had become a household name throughout not only Southern California, but the entire United States. She had created her own denomination she called the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. She published monthly magazines and built her own Christian radio station, KFSG. Some nights the signal from her Christian broadcast could be heard as far away as Australia. And yet despite her wealth, fame, and millions of followers, 
Sister Amy's life was a lonely one. At the end of the night, after she ended each of her church services and the lights in the temple were dimmed, Sister Amy went home alone. She developed a particular friendship with a radio engineer named Kenneth Ormiston. He was a constant presence in her life. Often he was the first person she saw in the morning, and the last person she saw at night. Rumors began to spread about just how close they really were, when on more than one occasion people overheard them speaking intimately to one another over the church's intercom. As much as Amy Semple McPherson relished her time in the public spotlight, she soon realized that it had its drawbacks as well. Privacy became a luxury to her. She heard the rumors about her and Ormiston, and she knew those rumors could be deadly to her reputation. There were already plenty of people who had it in for her and would love to see her fall off her pedestal. Her rapid rise in the evangelical community had raised the ire of several other popular preachers who saw this woman's popularity and more personable approach to preaching as an affront to God. There were also a number of Los Angeles political leaders and proponents of evolution who didn't want L.A. to be seen as a backwater community straight out of the Middle Ages. This all came to a head on May 18, 1926, when Sister Amy and her secretary went to Venice Beach for a swim. At one point, the secretary saw Sister Amy wade out into the water, but soon lost sight of her. The secretary grew increasingly nervous. She ran up and down the beach shouting Sister Amy's name, but Sister Amy didn't respond. Rumors began to circulate throughout the city that Sister Amy had drowned. That night, Amy's mother Minnie took to the pulpit at the temple and gave the service. Parishioners in the back of the room could hear newsboys outside shouting that Sister Amy had drowned. At the end of the sermon, Minnie announced to the devastated crowd that her daughter was now with Jesus. Tens of thousands of Sister Amy's followers prayed for her safe return. Coast Guard boats scoured the waters of Santa Monica Bay looking for a body to no avail. Some of her followers went out on their own boats and dynamited the waters, hoping to dislodge her corpse from the depths. But not everyone was convinced Sister Amy had drowned. One journalist published his suspicions that the whole thing was nothing more than a publicity stunt. He believed Sister Amy was planning on staging a miraculous resurrection after her apparent death. Over the following days, other more salacious rumors began to circulate about Sister Amy. Some claimed she'd run off to have an abortion, or plastic surgery, or an affair, any of which would have been a major scandal and a tremendous blow to her reputation. A San Francisco detective claimed to have spotted McPherson alive and well in a train station. Then a ransom note was delivered to McPherson's mother demanding $50,000 for her safe return. Someone else sent a different ransom note demanding money or else Sister Amy would be sold into what was described as white slavery. Witnesses from all over began coming forward claiming to have spotted Amy Semple McPherson in cities across the United States, making her the Where's Waldo of the era. Then, much like the case of Agatha Christie, McPherson suddenly reappeared alive and well a month later in Agua Prieta, Sonora, a tiny Mexican town just south of Douglas, Arizona. McPherson claimed to have walked across the burning sands of the desert to flee a group of kidnappers. She told police and reporters that she had been drugged and kidnapped by a group of Americans who demanded a ransom of half a million dollars for her safe return. 
She then described her daring escape by sawing through the ropes, crawling through a window, and walking across miles of desert to safety. But although McPherson's tens of thousands of followers were riveted by her story of escape and delighted to have her safely back, there were some investigators who cried fraud almost immediately. Police officers noted that when she was found, she was wearing different clothes than she'd last been seen in, and her grass-stained shoes hardly looked like they had been taken across a 13-hour desert track. Now, it is true that a couple of ransom notes arrived during McPherson's time away, and it is also true that a couple other high-profile kidnappings occurred in the area a few months earlier. But none of the evidence police discovered matched the details of the story Sister Amy told. Nor did any investigators ever manage to locate any of the alleged kidnappers, or even the mysterious cabin where she was supposedly being held. Many newspaper reporters also pointed out that at the exact same time McPherson disappeared, so too did the radio engineer Kenneth Ormiston. Some newspapers were quick to rake Sister Amy over the coals and publicize this alleged affair with a married man. Police went to investigate at a cottage in Carmel-by-the-Sea where Ormiston was sighted in the company of an unidentified woman during the time of McPherson's disappearance. Ormiston eventually admitted to having an adulterous affair with another woman whom he would only ever identify as Mrs. X, although he strongly denied the other woman was in fact Amy Semple McPherson. Gossip and innuendo would continue to dog Amy Semple McPherson for the rest of her life. The Los Angeles District Attorney even threatened to put Sister Amy in jail for fraud if he ever conclusively proved she had faked her kidnapping and wasted government resources. Two grand juries were assembled during 1926, but while a judge did cite Sister Amy for contempt, the DA was never able to prove she had committed any crime and was forced to drop the charges. Things were never quite the same for Amy Semple McPherson after her return. She tried changing her public image by losing weight and dyeing her hair, hoping to star in a film about her life that never got off the ground. She tried doing a show on Broadway that was panned by critics and the public for refusing to include the story of her kidnapping. The show closed in only a week. She was sued dozens of times over the next few years, and she became estranged from her own mother and daughter. Sister Amy also managed to alienate many of her parishioners because of her public behavior in the wake of her alleged kidnapping. She briefly married a singer named Dave Hutton, much to the shock of her parishioners, who believed a divorced woman should never remarry. She tarnished her reputation even more by divorcing her second husband and having a brief affair with comedian Milton Berle. During the Great Depression, she re-embraced the Pentecostal Church and tried to rebuild her ministry. But then in September 1944, Amy Semple McPherson was found dead in Oakland, California, of a barbiturate overdose. The official coroner's report listed her death as an accidental overdose, although it was widely reported as a suicide. Now, I may be the only one, but I'm struck by what I see as the many similarities between the stories of Agatha Christie and Amy Semple McPherson. Both women seem to have it all, money, fame, influence. Yet both Christie and McPherson were quite unhappy throughout much of their lives, and both vanished under mysterious circumstances only to return with very questionable stories. It devastated Agatha Christie to learn that her husband Archibald had been unfaithful. Archie was especially callous with his timing when he told Agatha he wanted a divorce shortly after the death of Agatha's beloved mother, an event that had already rocked her to her core. 
One of the popular theories about Christie's two-week vanishing act was that all the stress she had been under led what was described back then as out-of-body amnesia. This is a condition that's currently described as a fugue state in which a person continues to act more or less normally with little memory of what they've been doing. Although this condition is extremely rare, it has been documented in other high-profile cases as recently as 2018. Not too long ago, a 50-year-old Toronto firefighter named Danny Philippides went on a ski trip to Lake Placid, New York with a group of friends. One day, Danny's friends went back to the lodge while Danny planned on going out for a couple more runs. Only Danny never returned. Everyone, including Danny's wife, began to fear the worst. When a week later, Danny phoned his wife from Sacramento, California. He was groggy and disoriented, and he had no memory of how he had gotten there. Even more strangely, when Danny was found, he was still in his ski clothes, although sometime during the week when he somehow crossed the entire United States, he had gotten a haircut and was in possession of a new cell phone. Although some of the more outlandish theories about Danny were that he had either stepped through a stargate or had been abducted by aliens, doctors who examined him think he suffered a head injury that brought on a fugue stake similar to the one that's been theorized with Agatha Christie. But is that what really happened to the author? Some evidence suggests this may not have been the case at all and that she faked everything. Certainly if a detective as brilliant as Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot were able to examine these cases, he might twirl his perfect mustache and work the little gray cells to come up with a perfectly reasonable explanation for everything. Some reports claim that before she left, Agatha Christie wrote letters to both her secretary and her husband, Archie, describing her plans to get away. And that part of her reason for vanishing was to screw up Archie's plans to get away that weekend with his mistress. When Agatha was found at the Swan Hydro, she had with her a collection of new clothes and a money belt stuffed with cash. Both of which suggest there was some pre-planning involved. In fact, there was one story about her that said during the time she went missing, Christy went shopping at a London department store, where she lost an expensive ring. Then, later on, when she returned to normal life, Christy wrote to the store asking if they had found it. That's awfully suspicious considering she claimed to have total amnesia during those two weeks. Likewise, the story of Amy Semple McPherson's kidnapping seems to have just as many holes in it. Why was no one ever able to find the kidnappers or even the location where it allegedly occurred? The story Sister Amy told to police and reporters was so melodramatic it sounds exactly like the sort of thing someone would cook up for a publicity stunt. To be clear, we don't know for certain if either woman faked their disappearances. But McPherson, like Agatha Christie, may have simply wanted to drop out of the public spotlight for a while, and for very similar reasons. Heartbreak and loneliness seems to be the answer in both cases. In the case of Amy Semple McPherson, although on the surface it seemed like she had everything she could ever want, the one thing she always felt as if she were missing from her life was someone to love. For Agatha Christie, it probably seemed like her whole world was collapsing around her, what with the one-two punch of losing her mother, then having her husband telling her he was in love with another woman. It's true that Christie never spoke publicly about her disappearance after 1926, and she barely mentioned it in her autobiography. But something that's not as well known about Christie was that she sometimes wrote under the pseudonym of Mary Westmacott. And in the 1934 Westmacott novel, Unfinished Portrait, she told the story of a female writer who was driven to the brink of suicide 
after her philandering husband asks her for a divorce. One can only speculate just how much Christy drew from her own experience in order to tell her story. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Caitlin, Katie, Preston, Stephen, Kramer, Lisa, and John. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of special bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way to help out the show is to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast fix. We're available on most of your favorite podcast apps, including Stitcher and Google Play. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. You can always find us there or reach out to us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, or Instagram. There's also our email address at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line if you get a chance and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for joining us on our little historical journey, and I hope you'll be back next time. <laughs>